Now we turn our attention to consider God's word together. So look with me if you would in Acts chapter 16 once again. Acts 16. Actually, today we're going, to be move, we're going to move on to Acts 17. I'm sorry, I'm distracted trying to run sound and a few things at the same time. Uh, and something doesn't quite sound right, but we'll push through. In Acts 17, I'm going to read verses 1 to 10, then pray, and we'll dig into this section together. It's uh, uh, so rich and so meaty. So listen as I read God's word. Now, when they had passed through uh, Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. Taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and they set the city in an uproar, attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring uh, them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people of the city and authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night. Let's pray. Lord God, as we prepare ourselves to just consider this passage of Scripture, it is my plea to you once again that you would be pleased to open this up to us. That as we see your hand and, and, and we see specifically these events and these days and the words that you and your perfect wisdom have woven into this, God, we pray that again you would set before us the, with great clarity the grounds and priority of the gospel and person of Jesus Christ, the significance and crucial importance of your holy word, Lord, and also of the reality of the uh, persecution and pains that we will face as we're faithful in this world. Thank you also, God, for the richness of... Uh, some of the terminology in this text, God, help me to be able to open it up in a way that's clear and encouraging to the saints here this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I want us to remember this, whenever we open God's word, God's word is relevant. God's word is profitable. Even if at times it seems to us the things that it's addressing aren't identical to what may be going in, on in our life in that particular day or in that particular moment, God's word holds truth it, and correction. And in some ways, at times, it prepares us for things that are going to happen 
and other days. And so let us, let us never let ourselves succumb to that, that notion that uh, I don't think this today pertains so much to me, so I'm checking out. But in this context, we look at it and we see a lot of similarities to what was going on in that time to what's going on in our time. Have you seen people gathering together at times like mobs, at times in a riotous fashion? Is the, this is happening, and for varying reasons. And throughout history, these things have happened for a variety of reasons, sometimes good, sometimes important, sometimes not. But here in this passage, the riot is taking place for that which holds the highest priority. And I've said this in the past, and I will continue to say this, and it continues to also come out in song. We remember it from that early part of Colossians. In everything, Christ is to have preeminence. He is the head of the church. He is our Lord. He is our Savior. Apart from Him, we have nothing. Apart from Him, we can do nothing. And so we must remember in the midst of whatever particular issues are prevailing in the world today, and there are many, and in terms of the degree of importance that they have, and some are significant, none match the significance of our Savior. And so at times, secondary issues can be put aside to deal with particular priorities. But brothers and sisters, Christ will never be put aside. Because Christ is, is Lord of all before there were any nations. When there was but one man... And, and as nations rise and fall, and as, as leaders come and go, and from country to country and season to season, various issues arrive. When all is said and done, Christ remains Lord. When He returns, every kingdom and everyone who has ever lived will be gathered to stand before Him to face judgment. And that judgment is not going to be passed oftentimes on the things that consumed us during certain seasons in this life. It's going to be passed on the basis of the clear standards set forth in the Word of God. And what I want us to understand is when we come to this, we come to one who is Lord. And when we go forward, we proclaim one who is Lord. We proclaim redemption. We proclaim reconciliation. We proclaim salvation, lordship, justice of a standard that will not even really be known in this world. One of the, one of the prevailing experiences all over the world, not merely in our nation, is that there is constant injustice. You know, in, in the privileges of the journey in which God has taken uh, us on at times, we'll find ourselves in India or in Mauritius where you, you have a different demographic diversity than you do in America. 
and you still have prevailing forms of injustice. And that those things, when we see them, certainly it makes us cry for justice, but it ought to, ought to also more importantly stir in us a longing for the one who is just and the justifier, who is judge and who is king. And when he comes, he will come with righteousness. When he comes, he will come with justice. You know, I, I, there's a part of me that does love the things that are being said. And though, though they're said on one level, Oh, what a rich presentation that they are with regard to the spiritual level. Uh, I'm sure you've heard it said, and rightly so, and read in certain places, no justice, no what? Peace. We, we see it. Well, listen, where are we all in our sin? Where are we all when we're born into this world? dead in our trespasses and sin, practicing sin, walking in the darkness and sinfulness of our mind. And unless judgment is carried out against sin, there can be no reconciliation. There can be no peace with God. I tell you, in every century and for all eternity, that's the peace that really matters. Peace with God. And listen, on the cross, what did Jesus accomplish? He bore the righteous wrath and justice of God poured out against sinners. And because there has been justice against our wrongdoing, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Just want to remind us of these things as much as we, uh, to some degree, uh, appropriately join the conversations that are going on in the world today. Let us remember that when we join them, there is a conversation that might have significance for the next 40 or 50 years. But there is something in our conversation that is essential for all eternity. It preceded the existence of this nation. And if someday this nation folds, one thing continues to remain true. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus came as a man. Jesus lived a sinless life. Jesus was nailed to the Christ, the cross, bearing our sins in his own body on the tree so that we can be reconciled to God through Him. Amen? Oh, let us continue to, to see that. And it's, it's, it's that circumstance, again, into which uh, Paul comes with this message. He comes with this message that even people are not ready to hear. It's not their priority. It's not their culture. It's not their passion. It's not their religion. He's coming to Macedonia. They're dealing with other things. I love the way that the scriptures even unfold this and what it says about them. Listen to what it says in verse 6. As they, as they drag this fellow Jason before them, it says this, These men, 
who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. See, this is the reality. To come into to, um, whatever religion, indeed, to come into the presence of whatever country, whatever community, whatever culture, and declare Christ in all of his priority, in all of preeminence, his preeminence, in all of his excellencies and perfections, and declare Christ. This, the effect that it has is seemingly to turn the world upside down. Now, the reason why is because it's almost, when it, for our own visualization purposes, when God created the world, he said, this is good. And he, all the way through, and the, the sixth day, he said, this is very good. Correct? And then what shortly took place? Under the deception of the serpent, Eve heard those words and she took and she ate of that tree of knowledge and good and evil that she was not supposed to eat of. And then she gave also to her husband and he ate. And there is a sense in which everything that was good and upright in communion and fellowship with God turned upside down. And now instead of men living and facing and communing with God, men were, were at enmity with God. They, instead of uh, looking forward each day to the, to the evening where he would walk with them and commune with them in the cool of the garden, what happened? Suddenly, instead of running to him, there was a running away from him. Instead of desiring to commune with him, there was a hiding from him, a distancing, a separation. The world in the fall indeed turned upside down. And there's, there's a sense in which when you go forward with the gospel, it seems we're turning the world upside down when in fact we're turning it right back the way it's supposed to be. But that, that struggle is there. And, and, and they came through and they did, the, and it, it upset the people in that city. And I would ask this, listen, when is the last time you or I have upset someone by sharing the gospel? Now, now, this isn't to boast in ourselves. Now, now some of us may have a, a very short-term memory. I, you know, I'm aware of a couple circumstances in this room where it's been in the, this very week. It's been in this very month, someone you've shared, and, and it's upset. But sometimes for others, we get busy about other things. Look, generally speaking... Those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Sometimes we have that privilege when we open up Christ, or Ron shares with me, and he'll end up finding somebody who's interested in talking about Christ, and the door is open. But so often, even as we begin, and there's some degree of interest, we realize very quickly, for them, Jesus is a token for some form of earthly happiness or treasure. And they, and they don't understand, oh, no, 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 he's so much more than that. And actually, even as we looked at this morning earlier in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, in the life of Paul... It wasn't a token for earthly treasure 
and happiness and ease at all. But it was going to be a whole lot of pain and a whole lot of persecution. Right here in this chapter, we are now in the second missionary journey. We remember the first missionary journey that involved brutal stonings, mistreatments, running out of town, beatings. As we're here now in chapter 17, just in chapter 16, there's already been beatings. And so going forward with each step, what is Paul often expecting? More problems. You remember this. In Acts chapter 9, the scriptures are very clear. When Ananias went to him, God told him, you will tell him how much he must suffer for my name. That was a given. And, 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 he, and he began to do that. Now, we, we know that he came from Philippi. He had some degree of ministry in Philippi. And now in this passage here, 17, he's moving from Philippi on over to Thessalonica. Now, I understand you probably don't have a map in your mind of those things. And, and sometimes I, I think those things are relatively insignificant. It's shocking for me to read some of these commentators and they're wrestling over whether the journey from Philippi through these two cities uh, reaching Thessalonica, whether it was on foot or whether they rode possibly on horseback. I'm thinking... Who cares? You know, well, I think probably they rode because they would have still had injuries from before. You know, and, and that's not even relevant to, to, to the story. If that was important, then the scriptures would say it. But since the scriptures don't say it, it's not significant. The, the, the point is they went from this place to this place. And in going so, they passed through these cities. Well, as, now, it's not super far, which is helpful to us because the church at Philippi is going to send them uh, some money, some support for Paul's ministry as he's there. And they send it at least twice, whether it's in the span of three weeks or some people say more. Listen, why did they go there? Remember, just as we get this, when they went to Philippi, First thing they did is they went out by the river thinking there would be a place of prayer. They're looking for, and often was the case, to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. We've discussed before, that's not because necessarily the Jews are, are somehow holding a supremely special place. We'll actually look at that in a moment. But with regard to the establishment of the church, Jews who were in the context of the synagogue, they held to the Old Testament scriptures. They held to, there is one God, and this God created everything. And this God made Adam, and Adam sinned, and all of the things that we've come to know and take for granted, because, listen, you probably haven't oft gone to countries where the religion is not Christian or Catholic or some form of it, but where their religion is wholly something else. And so it would be very easy for Paul if he could get a, a group of Jews who had a right teaching as to who God is, 
how his power is manifest, his wrath, his justice, his mercy, his patience, his deliverance, and he was to be able to, the, to take all that they should have already had and then build it forward to its great fulfillment in the person of Christ, then you would have ready-made missionaries, ready-made church teachers and leaders. Remember, Paul was that. On the road to Damascus, he came to understand by divine intervention who Jesus was. So that when he was in Damascus, we are talking within weeks of his conversion, he is in the synagogue in Damascus proving to them that Jesus was the Christ. Because he had that background. It, when, you, when you take from those from other religions, you got to start at point one. With the Jews, you didn't have to say, uh, there's only one God. They got that. And so, so you didn't have to build from that. If you took somebody from the pagan community, you had to start from the basics. You had to train them in the Old Testament and then move them forward. This is one of the reasons you see them often prioritizing going to the synagogues. One of the beautiful things that you'll see woven into this, though, is the hand of God. Because God had even purposed in many of these places, he had by his grace drawn out of their own pagan communities and into the synagogues, Greeks, men and women of various sorts, God-fearers who had themselves been moved by grace to turn away from their religion and to learn of the God of the scriptures in the context of the synagogues. So God had already begun to do these things. And so I want us to see the specific destination. Why, why Thessalonica? Because it says this, they passed through Amphilopolis and Apollonia. They came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. You get this clear sense. Here they are in Philippi. We want to be able to have a significant impact. A lot of times the personal experience of Paul is this. We go there, we share, we get beaten and kicked out. And then we, we're not able to have an impact anymore because we're thrown out. We have to go to the next place. We want to be able to, even if it's a short-term impact, to be able to equip some who, when we're gone, they can carry on. And so they wanted to go where there is a synagogue. And so that's why they targeted in to, to Philippi. This was his regular manner, and they did this. Listen, they did this in three consecutive Sabbaths, that's what it says in verse 2. Paul went in as was his custom, as was his regular practice, practice, his pattern, on three Sabbath days. Now remember from previous sessions, he would come in on a Sabbath, speak to the people there, and sometimes they would say, come again next week so that we will hear you on these things. Listen, it, he did this for three three weeks. It is not a small thing to open up the scriptures to people. You know, it, 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 sometimes in my lifetime, it, I've watched uh, gospel tracks get shorter and shorter, and, and it's like, well, wow, 
Uh, not that I disagree with what this is saying, but is it saying enough? See, he, he went there on three consecutive times. And we know this, again, we looked last week with the Philippian jailer. He went to his home and he spoke the word of the Lord to him. Look, don't be discouraged if on day one they don't respond. You know, and don't be discouraged if you somehow weren't able to communicate all you wanted to in day one. You're in good company. I go home almost every Sunday thinking I did not communicate all I wanted to communicate. He came back a second time. He came back a third time. What I also want you to note, not only the specific destination where there was a regular practice and a repeated pattern to go in, but listen to his solid determination. It says this, verse 2, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. That is a very, very significant thing. Now, I want to help us with something, because we're going to see as we move further into Acts 17, when he begins to deal with the uh, Gentiles, he still tells them truths that we know from the Scriptures. But the Gentiles, do they value the Jewish Scriptures? If you were to tell them, this is what it says in Isaiah 53, is that going to convince them it's true? You've probably done this as you've sought maybe to take people through a gospel presentation through the Romans road pattern of doing so. You know, everyone's a sinner. Romans 3 through 23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And they say, well, I think everyone's basically good. Yeah, well, Romans 3, 23 says, yeah, but I think, yeah, but Romans 3, 9, and 10 says there is none righteous, no, not one. Yeah, but I think there are some. All right, you got a problem. <laughs> You've reached an impasse because you are speaking from the glorious conviction that God's word is true and man's word isn't. But one of the things we're off missing is the people we're talking to, they don't believe the Bible. And you say, you, so you said, look, you don't believe me? Let me show you from the scriptures. Well, that's not going to work. Now, listen, I want us to be careful. I'm not saying you abandon the scriptures at all. I'm actually saying there is an absolute priority in the scriptures. And many of our experiences will be to some degree similar to what's going on here as he goes into the synagogue. We live in a region that historically was referred to as the Bible Belt region. Um, how many, what percentage of people would call themselves Christians in your general experience as you roam around? A pretty high percentage, right? Most people we meet would call themselves that. Now, I've got, I've got two other things, and it, it's all, this will depend on your personality. Most people will call themselves Christians. How many of them would you call Christian? Now, some of you might call too many of them. Some of you might call too few of them. <laughs> How many would Christ acknowledge as Christians is the most significant thing, isn't it? 
But what I want us to remember is this. Uh, oftentimes, when we have the privilege of conversing with somebody who calls themselves Christian, we can ask them to start, do you believe the word of God? If they say, yes, I believe the scriptures are the word of God, I believe the scriptures are trustworthy. Oh, you've got fantastic grounds now to get into it. And realistically, when we are dealing in our Christian context, when we're dealing in our church context, which is generally an ecclesia, an assembly that's coming together in the name of the Lord to worship Him, to hear from Him, we believe in Him. And so we also will have a similar commitment among us as to what Paul has here, and that is he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Because we've already learned from 1 Corinthians 1 and other places, man's wisdom, useless, foolishness. And, and so, but the wisdom of God makes the wisdom of man foolishness by comparison. So when we come together to learn and grow, we realize listen, we live in a world that was upside down. You know, and there's a lot of things in us that may still be a bit upside down and need to be turned over. And the way that's going to happen is through the scriptures. Listen, the basis for this, and you see this as his pattern. Now, I'm going to note this next week. What Paul will say to the Galatians is still from the scriptures. He may not necessarily quote it and show the references and show the books, but he will summarize and declare the truth that we only know from God's scriptures. But you see this basis because Paul has, and we've looked at this recently, and I don't want us to miss this. In 1 Corinthians 4 verse 6, Paul had said this to the Corinthian church, brothers, I've applied these things to Apollos and to myself so that you may learn from us this saying, nothing beyond what is written. I honestly don't feel like I can say that enough. Nothing beyond what is written. I've got to remind myself of that every time that I study and pray and prepare to stand up here and speak or teach or engage people with counsel. Ultimately, we can share experiences and share things, and those things can to some degree be helpful. But what is true is what is written. What is sure is what is written. And, and nothing beyond that. We can speak of how it will apply in this area, how it can apply in this circumstance and, and, and share those kinds of things helpfully and practically how we live out the truth, but the truth does not change. And that's why I, I want us to get this even in 1 Corinthians 3, as Paul comes in there to preach the gospel he used this example in 1 Corinthians 3, speaking to them, as he does in all the places where he goes. He says, um, I'm going to read uh, verse 6. I planted, and Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So again, I wanted to, to note something there. He's using the illustration of agriculture. 
particularly, he's using the illustration of ancient agriculture. Now, uh, it means the agriculture of those days, even if somehow we think we've got some sort of science that supersedes, he's using these illustrations in those days. He plants Apollos waters. The beautiful thing about that, in a practical sense, does the planter create the seed? No. The, the seed is provided, in a sense, often it comes from previous plants. And so the, the seed is provided for him, and what does he do? He plants the seed. He doesn't go around planting his own ideas. He doesn't do his own things. The seed is planted. What does Apollos do? He waters. Does Apollos make the water? No. And again, we have passages, passages in, in Peter that talks about the implanted word, like a seed. We've got passages in the scriptures that talk about uh, the, the washing with the word, like water. And so, we, where, where is this seed? Where is this water? Where does it come from? Once again, it's from God. And for us in this context, nothing beyond what is written. It's, it's exactly what God has given. But we remember this. God gave the growth. Paul didn't give the growth. Apollos didn't give the growth. I also want you to note this. It's not that the seed grew. And it's not that the water gave the growth. God gave the growth. So God caused the seed to grow. God caused the water to to nourish so that it would grow up. God uses the seed and uses the water, but it is God that causes the growth. Important that we do not miss that. Uh, that's why he says in verse 7, so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. Whenever I read those words, it's pretty humbling. So can we boast as being anything? No, that's why Paul oftentimes, we note this, Paul was an apostle and he was compelled at times to depend, defend his apostleship. But he made, would make it clear so often at his introductions to books, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. He would start with the absolute humblest and lowest of terms and then speak of the high privilege of service that he had, but still humble. Uh, not only that, uh, so, so this passage says, Paul, as was his custom, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. And what is it that he reasoned with them from the scriptures? So, so briefly, just for a second, I'm going I'm to jump ahead and then we'll come back. Verse 3 says this, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So when we talk about uh, the word, particularly uh, uh, in an unbelieving context, where do you go? You go to Christ. 
That, that is where we, we go as quickly as possible. Remember, you can sometimes get sidetracked by, by some significant smarty pants into, into the origins of the universe. You know, and, and get caught up in those things, and you're trying to talk about uh, Noah, and you're trying to talk about the underlying flaws of the assumptions that are in some of the dating methods used by science, some scientists today, and you're, you're having this banter back and forth, uh, at the end of which, is there any hope that that individual might walk away and be saved? There's not if you never got to the gospel of Jesus Christ. If all you got to was talk about creation and the origins of the universe and the reasonability uh, 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 that there is an intelligent designer and the philosophical arguments that there must be a first cause, if there are, and, and all of this, you know, great. But without Christ, what do you have? And so I want to remind us, in, in all of the practical forms of, of, of what is oft called apologetics, the priority of apologetics must remain this, to take all thoughts captive to Christ, that, 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 that can't be lost, you know? And, and, and so I, I often encourage you in, in those contexts to say, all right, so if you're, if you're saying you don't believe the Bible, and you're saying that you don't believe God created everything in six days, but you believe evolution took place, then what do you think about what Christians believe? Have you ever heard from a Christian what they believe and why? All right, we'll talk about all those other things and scientific things, but let me tell you what a Christian believes and why. Because you want to get to Christ as soon as possible. Because if you don't speak of Christ, there is no hope. There is no, no forgiveness. That's why 1 Corinthians says it again like this in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. I love that terminology. What does Paul deliver? What he received. The apostles would receive directly by the authority and communication of Christ by the Spirit, and then they would deliver it. We have now received the same word, and we deliver it. Nothing beyond what is written. First importance, what? Christ died for our sins. And then what does he say next? In accordance with the Scriptures. And that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And I want you to notice this. This is to the church at Corinth in accordance with the scriptures. He's not necessarily taking them to a bunch of verses at this point. But from the beginning, he's establishing the priority of Christ and the authority of the scriptures. Now, they don't understand it yet, but they're being told this is Christ. He died according to the scriptures. He rose according to the scriptures. So they're hearing of, of the highest priority, which is Christ, and of the highest authority it, with, with men today as to what is truth, that is the scripture. Paul says this in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 2, verse uh, 
one and following. He says this, when I came to you, brothers, remember this is an initial coming, not when I had been with you for a year, but when I came to you, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech. I didn't come with some kind of impressive uh, motivational speech, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. My speech and message were not with plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power so that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. So when he comes, he comes with the message of Christ. Now, verse 6 says, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Because we make disciples, as it says in the Great Commission, baptizing them all in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. But you start where? With Christ, with His person, with His power, with what He accomplished. And then when by grace they're delivered to recognize Him as Lord and Savior, and by grace they follow Him, then you keep teaching them all the wisdom that the Scripture has. And you unpack that for them. I want to go on also to what I I'm going to call simple definitions. Simple definitions, but they're actually hidden in our translations just a little bit. You know, it, it, sadly, uh, sometimes in an effort to make a passage more simple in English, it, it makes the clarity a little bit more obscure, which I may have just done. So, all right. So let me, let me show you what I, what, I, what I mean by that. Simple definitions. What he was doing is he was reasoning, or that is, that can be declaring, discoursing, proclaiming, or it can also involve some degree of, of discussion and explanation. But he was doing this, as it says, now looking into verse 3, it says this, explaining and proving. You see those two words there? Now, weirdly enough, the, the King James there says opening and alleging, allegedly. No, no, it's not allegedly Jesus died and rose from the grave. <laughs> he did. I mean, it, it, it's not, it, it is a testimony, it is a declaration, uh, but this word for explaining, it, simply, it, it, it carries this idea of opening. Which, which the King James do, does set forth there. It's a word actually that can, can even mean uh, the birth of a firstborn as the opening of the womb. It says, it says this in Luke 2.23, as is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb. So again, the idea of uh, explaining here is opening the scripture. It, it, I get scared because it's not me adding my insight to it. It's me opening up what's there so that you and I rightly get what's there. The idea would be opening. You know, if you open a box and in that box, you know, there, there's a, a flashlight, a battery, and a screwdriver. 
when, it, when, you, when I open the box and I look into it and you look into it, what, we, what should we see? The same things, right? Now, it could potentially be that somebody who's from a place that's never seen a battery or never seen a screwdriver, uh, they'll still see the same thing we see, they just won't know what it is yet. It'll need to be explained to them and explained correctly. But what's opened up, everyone should see the same thing. Now, if I go telling you a bunch of other stuff and you look in there and can't see it, you ought to be saying, hey, 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 I don't see a wallet in there. <laughs> You know, I, th these are the things that I see in there. So why are you over here? Why are you doing that? We want you to open this to us. Open this up so that when we're done considering this passage of Scripture today, we see it. We hope we see it more clearly. We s hopefully see all of it to some extent. But not that we see things that aren't there. But this simple idea of opening it, um, it says this in Luke th uh, 24, 32, the same uh, basic word there. It says, um, th these are those men who are on the road to Emmaus. It says, they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while we were on the road when he opened the scriptures to us? Because what was Jesus doing? He was opening. He was saying, you see this passage? It speaks of Christ. You see this passage, it speaks of Christ. You see this passage, it speaks of the Christ. Do you see it? He's showing them, opening up the word, which is why I'm, this is one of the things that you can do uh, uh, as a simple test along the way. I mean, as we listen to people here and there, um, when they're teaching, do they keep referring back to the passage that they're teaching from and also keep going to other passages that open up and support those things? Or do you kind of get a, 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 a single verse or part verse here and there, but very rare, right? I mean, I remember some, uh, someone telling me about an experience they had where the man said, please open your Bibles and... and and, and they open their Bibles and, and turn to this chapter and to this verse, and they turn there, and, and he says, let me read, let me read this for you. It, the first words were this, there was a man. Okay, now close your Bibles. There was a man, and then he can talk about a man in, in, you know, in ancient Israel. You know, there was a man. He can talk about some ancient Greek philosopher. There was a man. He can go to the civil rights movement. There was a man. He can go to the women's rights movement. He, there was a man. What do you mean there was a man? Is, is that what the passage was talking about? I mean, we get that there was a man. But you can't just use the Bible for catchphrases to make a fancy speech. You got to say, what was this passage designed to say to us? What is it meant? How do, how do we understand it? Luke 24, 45 also says, Then he, that's Jesus, to the disciples, opened their minds to understand the scriptures. In Acts 16, 4, it said, The Lord opened her heart to understand. 
That's what it has to be about is an opening of the Word of God. And the, really, the reality, it, it, should be, it shouldn't be, uh, I can see what you can't see. No, no, no. It ought to be, do you see it? Can you see it? Now, I will say, sometimes things are just a bitty bit hidden from us because the, the translation doesn't carry the same weight as the original. Like, for example, here, explaining is helpful. He took it and explained it to them. But when the idea is opening it, it carries the idea of uh, not just giving an explanation, but, but unfolding what is to be understood by this. Not just... Go on to the second point. It says explaining and proving. The ESV says... Uh, explaining and proving. Some, some passages say uh, demonstrating, showing, KJV, alleging. Uh, uh, what, what's interesting about this particular phrase, uh, I'll, I'll read the, a verse that has the same word in it and see if you can figure out what word it is. Acts 16, we just finished the chapter 16. Verse 34, he brought them up into his house and he set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Does it say proved in there anywhere? Demonstrated? So what's the same word? He set food before them. This is the, this is the idea. Proving for those, particularly for those who are Jews, you are not expecting that the Messiah must suffer? Let me set this before you. I'm going to set this before you. I'm going to open it up. I'm going to set this before you. I'm going to open it up. I'm going to set this before you. I'm going to open it up. It's that, it's that idea of setting it before them. See this. Here it is. Take note of it. The same word is, is used in the Greek translation of the Hebrew in Acts 19.7, where Moses says this, he calls the elders of the people, and it says this, and he set before them all of the words of the Lord. Well, is he proving anything? No. He's setting it before them. But listen, if I set God's word before you, that ought to, be, that ought to hold proof. Now, in this context, now you're able to read this chapter, many are there, and he, he opens up and sets it before all of them for three Sundays. So, do they all believe? But he opened it up. He set it before them. How come only some did and some didn't? What's happening? What's going wrong? I mean, he, he set this before them. And listen, what, what did he set before them? And I'm going to have to end on this and we'll take it up again next week. What did he set before them? That Christ was to suffer, to die, and to rise again. Look, the fact that the Son of God would become man 
and that, that he would come in meekness and humility, that he would come like a root out of dry ground, that he would not have an appearance that, that we would be drawn to him, that he wouldn't be by human standards impressive, by, by earthly delights desirable. He wouldn't be that. And in the process of his ministry, when he comes towards the end of it, he is despised and rejected by men. I mean, this is a, an amazing thing, the way God has done this. Because listen, when men write religions, their savior is, is the hero, the, you know, the, the most handsome the most strongest, the most vital, the most victorious. And here you have Christ going, even as we sang, like a lamb, like a sheep to the slaughter. Doesn't shout, doesn't threaten, doesn't raise his voice. Even when being mocked and accused and being nailed to the tree and being provoked, I think often in that sense, even in that moment as he's given up himself and he's suffering in that way that he is, even at the hands of those people, he has mercy on that thief that's next to him. He's working the work of his father, grace, mercy, and salvation, even there in the midst of great agony and suffering. Have you thought of that? Can you just, just shocking that our Savior is not like any of the things of men. And he breathed his last and yielded up his spirit. You know, victory in death, victory in loss, victory in shame, ridicule. That's not the way men define victory. But he bore our sins. He knows our griefs, he knows our weaknesses, he knows our infirmity, and he rose victorious from the grave. And I tell you this, men have a vision of what a victor will look like. Any who have recently read the book of Revelation, chapter 19, anyone who's doing the McShane reading, when the Son of Man is coming again with glory and might, he is coming in the way that we would envision victory. Actually, in a way that exceeds our understanding of victory. Mountains fleeing before him. All of the nations of the earth wailing and moaning as he comes in vengeance and righteousness. Brothers and sisters, we need to proclaim Christ. The full scope of him. There is, there is mercy and kindness and forgiveness. And there is vengeance. And there is judgment. And there is righteousness. And there are all of these pieces that just boggle our mind. But they set forth one unlike any who has gone before him. One like any who will come after him. One through whom everything that ever has come, came. And one for whom everything that ever came, exists. For the praise of His glory and grace. And so, today what we've looked at 
just so far, and we'll take this up again next week, we saw there was a specific destination that was Thessalonica so that he could get these Jews and he could train up men who could carry on that work after him. We saw a solid determination. That solid determination was this. It's, I'm going to reason from the scriptures. And, and the reasoning from the scriptures is not, not all things. There are so many debates he could have had with the Jews, but it is with the priority of the person of Christ and not shying away from the offensive things about the Christ, that he fulfilled the law, that he uh, bore our curse, that he was nailed to a tree and died. The, the idea, cursed is the one that is nailed to a tree. The idea that the promised anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, would be nailed to a tree is exceedingly offensive and a stumbling block to the Jews. But it's essential gospel truth. And so it's declared. He ex- opens it up and sets it before them. Who Christ is. What he did. And that all of our hope is only in him. Well, let us pray. And we'll look forward to taking this up again next week as I will strive to set it before you and open it up. Let's pray. Oh God, there is none like you. Lord, we're so thankful that you've given us your word so that we're not left to our own whims. Uh, We're not left to our own supposed wisdom. Lord, I pray for myself and for all Uh, those dear men that stand and speak for you, that you would stir up within us the elements that we see within this passage, uh, that when we deal with your people and we deal with your truth, it is is about a, a careful reasoning from the scriptures where we set it before and we open it up. We see from the words of Scripture that in order for it to be rightly opened up, uh, Jesus opened their minds to understand. And so we recognize our dependence on you. We recognize these are spiritual things to be spiritually discerned. But Lord, we thank you that you've just not left us to our own feelings and our own ideas. You've left us your word. And though many times people reject it, Many rebel against it. It may at times incite riot. We thank you also that the scriptures, even in this passage, so that some come to riot, but others are brought to repentance. Lord, we are just uh, amazed that we're among those who have received mercy, that you have opened our hearts, opened our minds. We pray you would continue to open our eyes to behold the wondrous things from your word and just the glory and excellency of your purposes in the midst of a world where clearly things are turned upside down. Lord, give us the boldness to preach that one and only message that turns some aright and brings reconciliation and peace and justice. In Christ's name, amen.